This morning we're going to be in John chapter 15, 11 through 17. As you'll know if you've been here for some time that we've been working through the gospel of John, anytime we've taken the Lord's Supper together over the last couple of months, we have moved to doing the gospel of John on Family Sunday so that our kids get to see what it's like to journey through a book with us. And so we're in John 15, 11 through 17 uh, this morning. But because we only go through this once a month, I just want to help us to all get on the same page and just to discover where the text has us so that we understand uh, the situation that John has uh, connected for us, giving us the words of Jesus. So if you go back to John 15, 1, Jesus had this amazing teaching where he said, I am the vine, the Father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it bears more fruit. And so then he spends the next few verses kind of spelling out what that metaphor looks like. And he's calling us, he's compelling uh, us, he's compelling his audience, the disciples and others, to engage the life in Jesus. In essence, he says that if you plug into me, if you plug in uh, every area of your life, if there is no area of your life that you're kind of marking off and saying, look, this is for me and this is for Jesus, then, then I own all of you. And if I own all of you, then the way that you show love towards me is by obeying my word. And the way that I show love towards you is by finding those areas, those incidences in your life that are not honoring to me and graciously helping to remove those from your life. And sometimes that's painful. If you've ever had God invest himself in your life, discover sin in your life, and, and he endeavors sovereignly to move and to eradicate the sin from your life, it can be troubling, it can be uncomfortable, it can be painful, and it can be unpleasant for the people around you as you continue to move and, and to want to hold on to your sin. But that's what God does. He lovingly invests himself in us for the eradication of sin and the glorification of his name. Amen? Amen. Amen. So he goes through, and, and then what we come to in our passage starts in verse 11. Let's read 11 through 17, and then we'll walk through it together. He begins, and he says, These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose uh, you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then he ends and he says, these things I command you, so that you will love one another." So the intersection of this passage, what we begin to see are two things at work. On the one hand, we see the overarching commandment to love one another. And we recognize that he's talking to a gathered body of believers. And so we could find ready application for us this morning that as you look to your left and you look to your right, then, then you have an outlet for this. You have an outlet for the one anotherness of Scripture. And in fact, if you encounter any Christian anywhere in the world, you have an outlet for what it looks like to love one another. But he begins, we recognize, with this aspect of joy. And this is where it, it, it kind of creates a special application for loving one another. Look at what he says here. He says, these things I have spoken to you, this whole idea of abiding in him, this whole idea that God is sovereignly moving and orchestrating and removing things from your life to make your life more glorifying to him, to make his name more famous, and to get you closer to the heart of Jesus. 
These things I have spoken to you. That what? That your life would be miserable and you'd have no fun. That you could be the rule keeper who enforces all the religiosity in your community and in your household. No. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. The purpose endeavor of God moving in our lives is so that we would find joy where true joy can be found. You can find happiness and distraction in no small number of ways. You can find it in your spouse. You can find it in your children. You can find it in your job. You can find happiness and distraction in anything. But God designs that we find joy in him. So this is why Jesus tells us this. If you are a follower and a believer in Jesus, look what he says, that my joy may be in you. If you're a Christian in this place today, no matter the hardship, no matter the difficulty, no matter how depressing, within your life is an extreme capacity for joy that you cannot get artificially. Within you is an extreme capacity for joy that you cannot create on your own. But you can position yourself to be a better conduit of this joy. And look what he goes on to say. He says, that your joy may be full. This idea that our joy should be incredibly overwhelming, that it should flow from my life to the lives of those around me. And this is where we begin to recognize the purposed application of what it means to love one another. You see, God has divined that the way that joy is to be found is in the person of Jesus through us abiding in him. God invests and he places that joy within our lives. But he's, he's designed it in so, such a sense that in some way our ability to receive joy is directly in proportion to the degree that we allow people into our lives, Christians into our lives. What a terrifying statement that as you sit here today, Christian, it is your express responsibility and delight to be a conduit of God's joy and blessing on all those around you. And how would we do if we were to ask uh, our spouses, ask the people around us, ask our children, ask the people that we work with, the people that see us checking out at Walmart when they run out of register tape and all these various things. If we're to say, is Jesse, is Zach, is Sammy, is Jane, it, are they a conduit of joy? And they're like, I don't know, what time of day is it? Are they on vacation or not? You see, our joy as Christians is unassailable, and it's our special uh, privilege to be conduits of this joy. So he goes on, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. And then he typifies it for us. He, he displays, he gives us the constraints of what his love needs to look like. He says, you need to love one another as I have loved you. Now, we are experts at reducing our liability, Right? We're experts at reducing our liability in terms of things that are dangerous and things that cost us something. But in terms of this, he says you are to love one another. And if you've been in a church of, of any size or any small stature, you recognize that any of these churches you've been in, you're going to find at least one or two people who don't like you. And you're going to think it's you who don't like them, but in reality, they're the ones that don't like you. But, but this is what it is to be with other people, because some of us have personalities that if we're going to sum it up, we would just say that they're frustrating. They're not kind. They're not much fun to be around. And you know that people feel the same way about you. 
You may think you're the most delightful person and nobody could possibly have anything against you. Give it time. <laughs> Give it exposure. Each of us, if we were to take turns coming on the stage and, and our souls could bear the honest unloading of people in this room, we would, we would depart in tears, say, what is it about me particularly that you don't like? Oh, that's enough. I'm done. <laughs> right? But even within the confines of this and all of these various relationships and how incredibly difficult it is to be invested in other people and to allow other people to invest in you because it requires terrific vulnerability on this way and it requires terrific vulnerability going that way. That it's within the confines of all of these various difficult relationships and disappointments and heartbreak and, and some hapless nitwits in the mix that all of these people is the locus for loving one another. And what are the constraints that we're allowed to place on this love? We recognize that Jesus nails us to the wall. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. In Romans 5 and 6 through 8, we read these words. Just trying to, I just want you to get a sense of just, just how much God has loved you. He says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us even that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you begin to think of in terms of like, what does it look like for me to love those around me? And, and, and who do I find to be a suitable application for this love? I mean, you got to kind of move through and try and find, find people that... that that we just mesh better with, and people that we, like, I understand your worldview, I understand your political view, I, un I understand uh, where you live, and I understand your background, and I understand your level of education, and so I find you to be a person suitable to receive my outpouring of love. But we're challenged when we begin to look at Jesus' words and Jesus' demonstration there in Romans 5. Listen to this. If God's love was poured out on us like we pour out our love on those around us, we would be enfeebled and headed straight for hell. Because we're incredibly picky on who's deserving to receive our love. We're incredibly choosy and bigoted and hateful in determining who's worthy to receive our forgiveness. And that has a lot to do with the way we love. Our time of day, we value their opinions even though they're so incredibly stupid calls us out and he says, love one another. And I want you to see the amazing thing here in this tent shift here, back over in John. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. You know, in Jesus' first speaking of this, the disciples, they're, they're, they're kind of looking at it and they're thinking, love one another as, as, as I have loved you. Okay, so he's, he's constantly explaining the parables to us, even though we didn't get it, and he let us be a part of the cool crowd and, 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 and the in-group, and he kind of kept us moving along, heading in the right direction. But of course, as we read this, we recognize that the most supreme way God has loved us is in the giving of the Son and giving us the capacity to receive his love in the setting, shedding of the Son's blood. But look at where he's continuing to go. Greater love has no one in this that someone lay down his life for his friends. And we begin to recognize there is no way around this. There's no way to, to find this love somehow diminished or, or made easy or more easily digestible. 
right after Pentecost, and in, in, in what we see in Acts 4 is everybody is sharing all their possessions. It never entered into anyone's mind that there could be stuff that is mine and stuff that is yours. It was all the stuff is ours. This is the only time socialism actually worked. And so what we see is they're going in and, and they're sharing all this stuff together, but it enters into the mind of, of two people, Ananias and Sapphira. They look at it and say, all right, now hold on a second. What if, what if it looked like we were giving everything? Nobody has to know. So Ananias leads over to Sapphira. He says, check this out. Everybody's caught up in the wash of sharing all their stuff, and we can be a part of that same group. Sapphira says, I knew I married you for your brains and that field, and now we get the money. And so they go and they concoct this ridiculous plan that they can look like they love everyone else. They can look like they sacrifice like everyone else. But it doesn't really cost them everything. And the unfortunate tale uh, you can read out in Acts 5, they go all the way up to the disciples and they say, look what we've given. And their lives are commended of them. Their lives are commended of them. The reality is we look down at each and every one of our lives and we inspect our hearts. And we know that there are areas where we're not loving those around us. We know that there, there are people who we... We kind of shield ourselves against because they're going to be the needy people that need that deep, long, like, all oh, these conversations that just never end. And this is the 47th time I've talked to you about this. I didn't count at first, but then I was just started thinking, is she really going to hit 50? She's, oh my goodness, we're at 47. She's going to hit 50 before the week's out. But this is what God has given us. And in that moment, when your brother or sister comes to you, you have an opportunity to show them the joy of the Lord. And the great thing is, you can do this. Not because you can sit there and, and think about your favorite TV show or hum a song, or you know they're not going to ask very many questions, or you know the answers to their questions, so you programmatically know and say, mm, mm, oh yeah, oh, that's so sad. Oh, no, I mean, so glad so sad that I wasn't glad earlier. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Love that chicken at Popeye's. Oh, I said that one out loud. I say, I wish just go get some Popeye's chicken when you're done. I mean, when we're done dealing with your issues and your heartbreak here. But in those moments when people come to us, man, do you know how much it takes for somebody to come to you and to bear their heart? You have this terrific privilege in that moment to pray to God and say, God, allow my life right now to be a cause of joy for this person who's experiencing heartbreak. God, you've given to me fullness of joy. Allow the joy overflowing in my life right now to flow into their life through the love that I'm showing to them. And it's going to be a sacrifice, and it's going to be difficult, but this is what church is. We have this mistaken assumption that church is keeping all the people headed in the right direction at the same time, and that's a lot of it. But if that's your approach to church, you might as well start herding cats because it's impossible. But what we can actually endeavor to do, and we're spiritually set up and given the capacity, the direction, and we're outfitted and designed for is loving one another. And when we don't love one another, we're engaging in a practice that's disingenuous to the whole creation of church. The whole fostering of us together 
the dividing of lines and denominations and fellowships and times of services and all these various things are the constraints we put in to make this thing more palatable and easier for all of us to engage in. But the thing that continually makes it stink, the thing that continually makes it difficult is all of us being in the same room. It makes it hard. It makes it so incredibly difficult. Now, I'll tell you this. The easy way to do church is to only come on Sunday morning to park after the parking attendants are gone and to leave before the service is over. If you want to do church the easy way, that is the way to do it. But that's not what Scripture calls us to. And I'm not going to stand in the hall to see who leaves early, although that would be a neat application. But what we see in this is if we're going to be true to what church calls us to be, we have to be invested in the lives of our fellowship. Get to know people. Let them get to know you. Let the messiness of their lives spill over onto yours and let the facade of the perfect life fall down around you as the messiness of your life spills onto them. We have to love one another. Jesus goes on, and I want you to notice this. He calls them friends three times. He says, a greater love than this has no one that he lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all that I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. Three times he calls them friends. Friendship with Jesus is is necessitated and, and described by being those who are obedient to him. You can't be Christ's friends and not, and not be obedient to him. Now, what we recognize in the beauty of this, and the beauty of this, he, he continues to tell us back in 14 and 15, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so we see there that this repeated connection between loving him and doing what he says. Loving him and doing what he says. If I tell my wife and I tell my kids all the time, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I don't do anything that they want to do, I completely disregard their, their desires, I completely disregard really the relationship, and I'm just maintaining, the, maintaining this kind of vocal relationship of I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm demonstrating through my actions that I don't actually love them. So this is what Jesus tells us. If you really love God, you'll quit being disobedient. You'll quit living the life that you want to live and start living the life that he has for you. You'll abandon sin, you'll abandon selfishness, and you'll follow him. And Jesus says, well, I need to give them an example. So in 14.31, he says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that they would know that I love the Father. So he says, look, if you, if you want to be known as those who love me, obey me. And I want to be known as the Son of God who obeys the Father, so I do what he has commanded me. So we see within this that there is uh, the impossibility of separating our love from God to our obedience to God. But think about this idea of friends. Think about the idea of friendship. Jesus gathers the disciples together and he's giving them this word on friendship. What it looks like to be his friends. And to be his friends is to obey his commands. And, and to be his friends is to receive his love. To be his friends is to be invested with the true knowledge of God. Think about what's about to happen. Of the intimate friend group of Jesus, he would be betrayed by two of them. The intimate friend group of Jesus, the people that he's repeatedly referred to as friend, 
We've got this guy, Judas, who within the span of a day or so from this writing would turn Jesus over to the Roman authorities. And Jesus looks at him with all love and intensity. In chapter 13, he washes his feet and he loves him. The whole time knowing the depravity and the brokenness and the selfishness and the traitorousness caught up in Judas's heart. Let's think about Peter. Peter is so incredibly exuberant. Like he's, he's just always the first one to jump in. Not always the first one to say the right thing, but he's always the first one to say something. Peter's so incredibly sure that he'll be with Jesus all the way to the end. So Jesus looks at Peter. He loves Peter. And calls him friend. Then he knows that within just a short while, Peter is going to deny him three times. Think about the beauty of that word, friend. That today as God sees you and he sees the disappointment that you recognize your life to be, or you see your life as, you see the sin in your life you see your inability to stay headed in the right direction, all the things you struggle with. That through the shed blood of Jesus today, God looks out at you and he calls you friend. In spite of your failures, covering your failures, in spite of your misgivings, covering your misgivings, See, when we begin to look back at that the other way, it trivializes the thing to look back at God and say, God is my friend, because I could never be the friend to him that he is to me. I'm going to fail at that every single time. But when he looks down at me, he's not disappointed in my life. He's disappointed for the wreck that I sometimes make of it. Because he knows the beauty and purpose that he has for it. And he calls me back into this relationship over and over and over again. And each time he says, friend, welcome home. Welcome home. And when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ veer out of control in their lives and we extend love to them, we join with God in declaring their friendship to him and saying, welcome home. Come on back. Don't stay out too long. Come back and experience the joy and forgiveness that is yours and it's overflowing and has visited you in the person of Jesus in his sacrificial death, but has been communicated to you even now in one he also calls friend. Let's look at 16. You get down to 16, he says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. We see a twin purpose in 16. He connects it. He says, So that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give to you. It's this amazing purpose that in the providence of God and in the sovereignty of God, he chose us. And when did he choose us? According to Romans 5 and elsewhere, he chose us when we were so incredibly disinterested in him. He chose us in our sin. He chose us in our apathy. He chose us in our brokenness. He chose us being completely disinterested and dispassionate. He chose us cursing his name. He chose us walking away. And in those moments, he chose you and declared you to be his friend, and he appointed you into a purpose. See, he didn't just choose you and place you on this island of segregation and secrecy and security. 
But God has chosen you, and he has appointed you, and he has given you a special purpose. And look what it is. It's that you go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Each of us have been entrusted with an incredibly precious opportunity to replicate ourselves in Jesus Christ. If I am a good person, and I exhibit Christian fruit over the span of my lifetime, but I do not replicate myself, my fruit will fail. Maybe my kids or my grandkids at my funeral would say, he was such a good man. But if I have not invested myself in the lives of those around me by loving them and pointing them to Jesus, my fruit is temporary. I can be the nicest person you've ever met. But if I'm not replicating myself first within the lives of my children, pointing them consistently, repetitively to Jesus, and showing them when I fail and what it looks like for the grace of God to move in and to redeem me so that they might be those who grow up not expecting to be perfect, but expecting and longing to be repeatedly redeemed and forgiven. If I'm not doing that, then I fail. But if I'm doing that only in the lives of my kids and only in the lives of my family and only in the lives of those who are easy, then I'm cheapening the forgiveness of God. When you think about the sphere of influence God has given you, at school, at home, in, in any extracurricular event that he's given you, the hobbies, the interests, all the various places he's going to carry you, contesting your, your, the value of your home to try and lower your taxes. I mean, that is an opportunity to be joyous in a moment that is incredibly tense, and that is an opportunity to invest yourselves in the life of someone for whom Christ died. We need to be intentional and desirous that we would be replicating ourselves, not making copies of ourselves, but making copies of Jesus. We want to bear fruit that will last, and so that's why Jesus shows us that our prayer is directly tied to this. He's not giving us carte blanche to pray for whatever we want and get whatever we want. Our, our, the fruitfulness of our prayer, the good outcome of our prayer is caught up in this moment where we're living such sacrificial and selfless lives, replicating ourselves, sharing the gospel, living out all of its implications and calling others to do likewise. It's in that moment, in that moment alone, whereby our prayers are completely unhindered. And the Father delights to give us those things. Some of us, our challenge needs to be praying for the lost people around us. Praying for the lost people around us that God would come in and that he would invade their hearts, that he would change their lives. Their lives aren't problems looking for solutions. They are people in need of a Savior. And God has placed you, friend, God has placed you within their lives to communicate his saving, transforming message. God has placed you in your neighborhood. God has placed you at your job. God has given you insecurities and, and, and victory. God has tailor-made your life to be the perfect conduit of the saving message of Jesus Christ to someone who desperately needs to hear it. He calls you friend. And he wants you to be a friend to those you encounter. So he comes and he wraps up here in verse 17. He says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. We're commanded to be aware of the joy that God has given inside of us. 
so that we would love one another. We're commanded to reflect upon the sacrifice of the Son so that we would love one another. We're commanded to recognize all of these things so that we wouldn't well up in pride and be overwhelmed at our own ability. But we'd be so humbled by the goodness of God that in the goodness of God, he gives us an opportunity to produce joy in the lives of those around us. And in the goodness of God, he gives us an opportunity to produce life in those around us. Fruit that will abide and fruit that will last forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us as we're preparing to transition to take the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to take the Lord's Supper together, to reflect upon the death of your son Jesus, to look forward to his coming again, to joining together with all Christians from all times at the marriage supper of the Lamb, drinking from that cup, that joyous cup. So God, I want to pray this morning for us that we would be those who love one another, that we would be those who delight in being loved by the people that you have deemed to be friend. Lord, help us to walk in faithfulness to you. And God, as we have opportunity to pause and to reflect on your sacrifice, I pray that we would be compelled to focus upon how great a love that is poured out for us. That while we were still weak, Christ died for us. And we were still enmeshed in sin chasing this world and all its trappings, the blood of Jesus was atoning for our sins and made real and made vibrant at the confession of our sins in Him as Savior and Lord. Scott, would you stay with us? Would you move in our hearts in this time? Help us to reflect upon you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.